You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. It's good to be back, guys. It's been three weeks, three weeks of holiday. It was really, really good for us as a family. Um, good time for recharging, but I'm glad to be back. Um, the series that we're jumping into now in the book of Colossians that we've titled No Turning Back. I'll get into a little bit more about why we've called it that in just a minute, but it, it sort of came home to me the importance um, of uh, being encouraged to stand firm in the faith, not just because of what Dugu said about prominent Christians turning away from the faith, but just I, I see in, my, in myself this propensity to drift away from Jesus, and particularly when I'm disconnected from you guys. I've said this before, and some of you think I'm joking. I'm not, I'm not joking when I say that I need you. You keep, you keep me Christian. I go on holiday for more than a couple of weeks, and I start to drift. And I, it's not because of outright opposition or persecution. I didn't experience any of that over the last three weeks. It's just when I untether myself from you guys, I start to, start to go. And... Um, yeah, I felt that on this, on this last holiday away. It was a great holiday. It was restful. It was beautiful. It was warm. It was wonderful. And yet, even then, I kind of felt myself just, just I mean, not turning away from Jesus, not denying the faith, but just moving away from making all of life all about Jesus. And that can happen really fast if you're me. So all I'm saying is thank you for keeping me Christian. I appreciate that. Um, kind of came home to me actually a couple of days ago um, yeah a few days ago now we were on Fraser Island driving um, driving around on the sand as you do and having lots of fun and we had borrowed Renee's late father's uh, four wheel drive ute and so we were having heaps of fun driving that around and we came across these Five, I think, Norwegian guys who had decided that they were going to walk, I don't know how far it was, 15, 20 kilometres through this, this deep sand to get to this lake that we were going to. They weren't going to make it. Like, not just they weren't going to make it that day, they weren't going to make it. Um, they, like, these Norwegian guys just didn't, they, they weren't familiar with the territory, right? So, anyway, we, we had driven past, and then Renee was like, I really think we should, we should pick them up. And I was like, I don't think I can be bothered picking them up. Um, I just want to get to this lake so we can jump in. Anyway, she prevailed because she was right, and we picked these guys up. We were driving them around, and then... Renee said to me as we were driving them back again from the lake, she said, I really think God wants us to pray for these guys before we drop them off at the ferry. And um, so why don't you do that? Why don't you, why don't you, you know, when we drop them off, why don't you pray for them? And I, and I just said, I don't think I'm going to do that. <laughs> and Renee was like, well, I, you know, I think God wants, I think God wants us to do that. I said, yeah, I'm sure he does. I'm just not going to do that. <laughs> and it revealed something, right, about my heart. that I, I had started to drift away from you know, making all of life all about Jesus, about taking every opportunity to bless people, to communicate God's love to people. I didn't want to pick them up, and I didn't want to pray for them. Two days later, we were back in Bundaberg, and... I was just at this little shopping centre, dingy little shopping centre, 
Um, as like with all the other men in the shopping centre waiting for our wives to come back from shopping. And I was just sitting there and... And I have to admit, I was kind of wrestling with what had happened and my kind of refusal to take the opportunity to bless someone. And then these two guys came up to me in their 70s and, and they just sort of stopped and looked at me and then came over to me and I thought, ah, someone's going to try and sell me something. I really am not up for this right now. And they said to me, we're not religious freaks, we're Christians. I was like, that's, I don't know, that line might work with some people, but I'm just, I'm not in the mood. <laughs> and it went from bad to worse. Like, first of all, they're wearing socks and sandals, and I know that's cool for the kids <laughs> these days, but I'm not, I'm not there yet. I'm not, not riding that fashion wave. And the first thing the guy did was sing a song about Jesus. And I was like, oh, man, we need to work on your routine. And, and I, end, I ended up speaking with them for 20 minutes or more, tears in my eyes as they prayed for me. And the, the thing that happened in our interaction was so deeply encouraging. They, like, they were just all about blessing me right down to giving me 50 bucks. I was like, mate, I, I really, I'm pretty sure you're on the pension and I don't need your money. He just said, God told me to give you this money, so you can't refuse. Right? And, and, and that was the least of the blessing that they gave me. Encouragement, like reminding me who, like they could pick up on it. This one guy who didn't speak so much, I think he was Dutch, didn't speak as much. He was just, he was just looking into my soul the whole time and he could, t- he could tell that I wasn't in a good spot, right? And so they just poured out this blessing on me. And, and the main substance of what they were saying, once they knew that I was a Christian, they weren't trying to convert me anymore. They were just trying to bless me, encourage me, encourage me, right? Strengthen me. And it was a beautiful thing. That's the purpose of Paul in writing this letter to the church at Colossae. He wants it to be a great big boost, a great big encouragement to them. He knows that they're starting to drift. He knows that all of us are prone to wander, prone to leave the God we love, right? And so he's written this letter to encourage them, to be a shot in the arm, that, that, he, would, that he would implore them, encourage them, command them not to turn back. And my prayer for these next seven weeks is that all that he hoped and prayed and believed for the Colossians would be true for us as well. Do you need some encouragement? Stick with us. We're going to work our way through this book. We're going to start at the first verse. So make sure you've got it in front of you. Encourage you to follow along as we go. So verse 1 of chapter 1. We get introduced to the author of the letter. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by God's will, and Timothy, our brother. It's Paul and Timothy, that father and son in the faith, together, probably, most likely, in about AD 62. So the year 62 in the first century, and writing from Rome 
in all likelihood, writing from Rome in prison. So this is one of Paul's imprisonments. He's in, in jail for preaching the gospel and planting churches. And he's writing this letter to encourage the church at Colossae, not writing it himself, but in all likelihood dictating it to Timothy, who's writing it down for him. And so that's why it's Paul and Timothy. Paul writing and dictating in the first person, Timothy taking it all down in order that it might be sent off with Tychicus to the church in Colossae. And so he says in verse 3 of chapter 4, this gives us an idea of of what, what the, the state that Paul's in, he says right at the end there, at the same time, talking to the church, he says, pray, please pray for us that God may open a door to us for the word to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. So Paul's in prison again. He's in prison because of the mystery of the gospel, that is, the glorious truth that Jesus saves. And so that's their context, the context that they're in writing this letter. You've got to imagine literally Paul chained up for preaching the gospel. And then he gives us the audience, all right? So verse 2, to the saints in Christ at Colossae who are faithful brothers and sisters, grace to you and peace from God our Father. So Colossae, Give you a bit of context for that place. It's a it's a smaller city than most of the churches that Paul is familiar with. He tends to plant churches in big cities and then sees the effect of that spread out to the surrounding regions. Colossae is not that big a place. It's kind of it makes me think for a few reasons. It makes me think of Caroline Springs, right? It's not the metropolis. It's a little bit further out. It's still got sizable influence in the region, but. It's not the biggest place in the world. Another reason that it reminds me of us is that the church there is about 10 years old, just like us. And so as far as we can tell, this church was planted in around AD 52, and um, it wasn't planted by Paul. Paul's never been to this church. He's not familiar with the people he's writing to. The church was actually planted by a guy named Epaphras, who we're going to meet in a second. Epaphras... As far as we can tell, Epaphras was converted when he heard Paul preaching in Ephesus. As Paul was preaching there for three years and doing his missionary work in Ephesus back in the 50s, Epaphras was there, got converted, and then, knowing this great good news, went back to his hometown. He's from Colossae. He he goes back to the Colossians and he starts a church. He's like, there is no church here. The gospel isn't here, so I'm going to get it done. So he starts the church, shares the good news of the gospel, and that's how the Colossian church came about. And so now he's been ministering faithfully to them for 10 years. And at this point, as Paul writes it, he has gone to Rome to visit Paul in jail. This is Epaphras. And if you're here this morning, this is the first time you've heard the name Epaphras, and if you're even going to try and pronounce it like me before, you would have trouble speaking it, that's, you're not alone. Epaphras isn't a well-known guy. He's one of these unsung heroes of the Bible, but a hero nonetheless. Receiving the gospel, taking it upon himself to start a church, and then faithfully ministering to that church for 10 years. This is what Paul says in verse 7 to 8, 
He says, you, you, you learn this, that's the gospel, the glorious truth of the gospel. You learn this from Epaphras, our dearly loved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. And he has told us about your love in the spirit. You want your pastor to be like Epaphras. If you care about the state of your soul, about the health of your church, then you want your pastor, your pastors to be like this guy. This is what Paul says about him in his farewell discourse, right? In, verse, in chapter 4 and verse 12, he says, Epaphras, who is one of you, he's a Colossian just like you. He's a servant of Christ Jesus. He sends you greetings. He is always wrestling for you in his prayers so that you can stand mature and fully assured in everything God wills. That's what Epaphras is like. He's a hard worker. He's a faithful minister. He wrestles in his prayers for his people. Tomorrow night we've got a whole church prayer gathering here where we're going to wrestle in prayer for the lost right? For our friends, family, loved ones, neighbours, co-workers who don't know Jesus. We're going to be wrestling. It's going to be, it's a prayer meeting. It's, it's a wrestling meeting, right? We're going to be wrestling with God in our prayers for the souls of those who don't yet know him. That's what you want your pastors to be like. So Epaphras, I love this guy. I mean, I hardly knew him before I came to this series, and I just love him. He's just so faithful. He's unsung. Like most of the pastors who have ever lived, he's not famous. He's never written a book. He's not, you know, trending on iTunes. He's just, he's just faithful. And Paul just loves him for it. He's a beloved servant. So Epaphras has come to Rome to meet with Paul and he's going to tell him about this church in Colossae that Paul's never visited. And he gives them a report um, about his church and how, it, how it's going. So here's, I'll just get a little summary for you of what's going on here. Okay, so Epaphras' report to Paul about the state of the church in Colossae was an encouraging one. They were bearing fruit in keeping with those who had turned away from other gods in order to worship the Lord Jesus. However, it seems clear that Paul was aware of the pressure these new Christians were under under, to go back to old ways of being and believing, especially regarding worship of other gods, former religious practices, sexual purity, and family life. So he's going to address all of those things in this letter. One of his major motivations for writing this letter was to encourage the Colossian Christians to stand firm. Thus, the title of our series, No Turning Back. So right from the beginning, we see this motivation of Paul to encourage them to stand firm, right? to be faithful to the Lord Jesus, to acknowledge his supremacy over all things, including their, their former ways of being and believing, right? They were, they were polytheists like everyone else. They were pagans. They worshipped many other gods. They had mingled, it seems, some of the, the polytheism of their um, cultural heritage with some weird parts of the Jewish Torah law, and, and we'll see that coming out later in, in the book. But they had, they had this struggle against what they knew to be true about the gospel 
gospel and their state before God as redeemed people and this tendency to fall back to old ways. And so he wants to encourage them, stand firm. And I love the way he goes about this, right? His method for doing this is not just to yell at them, not just tell, like, tell them, stop doing that, try harder, right? The first thing he does is he reminds them who and whose they are. This is essential. If we're going to persevere, if we're going to stand firm, right? If our story is going to be about not turning back, then we need to know who and whose we are. All right, verse 2, let me read it again. He says, To the saints in Christ at Colossae, who are faithful brothers and sisters, grace you and peace from God our Father. There's a lot in there. There's a lot of good stuff in that little verse that I just want to want to focus in on here, okay? So first, first of all, he says, they are saints in Christ. If you came out of a Roman Catholic background or an Anglo-Catholic background, you need to forget all that stuff you learned about the saints being ultra-holy people that maybe you pray to occasionally, right? We don't venerate these few people who have made the grade and, and been sainted, right? No, Paul says every one of you is a saint. Every one of you is a saint to the saints, not a select group of people, but to the church, those who are in Christ. And this is going to be a big thing for Paul in this letter. He wants those Christians to know they are in Christ, That's a huge theological doctrine to get our heads around. We are, as believers, in Christ. And that means because we are in him, it means all kinds of things. One of the big things he's going to bring out is the fact that though these Colossian believers were freaking out because of some of their cultural religious background, they were freaking out about demons and and dark powers and, and being attacked by weird stuff. He wants them to know you are in Christ. That means you're safe. You're secure because Christ is over all of those things. He is Lord of heaven and earth, of all things seen and unseen, over every earthly power. Christ is supreme. And so because you are in him, you are above all those things too. Because you are in him, you have everything that he has. Because you are in him, you are privy to, blessed with, his inheritance. And his inheritance is everything. Because you are in Christ, you are in his kingdom. So this is a big thing for him. To the saints in Christ. Not just near to Christ or proximate to Christ, but in Christ. And then he says, you know who you guys are? Your brothers and sisters. That's why I can give you grace and peace from God, our Father. Your brothers and sisters. Why? How are you, brothers and sisters? You've been adopted into the household of God the Father. That's a profound truth. One of the guys that was talking to me in that shopping center, he sort of just kind of broke down weeping at one point. He said, it's just so beautiful when you meet another believer and you have this instant connection with them. Like I, we were both kind of vibing off each other and it was, it was because we're brothers. Never met each other before. 
meeting offhand in a dingy little shopping center, but we're brothers, so it means everything. We have a connection that we wouldn't otherwise have had, and it's because we're brothers. We're brothers and sisters of God the Father. How has this happened? He, he, he explains in verse 13 and 14 this beautiful explanation of what's happened to everyone who, who knows and loves Jesus. He says, He, Jesus, has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son He loves. In Him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So this father that we have, this father who has adopted us and made us brothers and sisters, he rescued us from the domain of darkness. He transferred us into the kingdom of the son he loves. And in Jesus, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That's huge. Redemption, justification, adoption. These aren't just big theological words that make us feel smarter, right? They are everything to us. They are the most precious truths that we can own for ourselves. Redemption means you were a slave in the kingdom of darkness and then God came along and bought you. You had nothing on you to buy yourself out of slavery. You were absolutely chained up forever And he came, even when you were his enemy, he came and bought you. He redeemed you. He paid a price for you that you could never pay yourself. We have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That's justification. We've been made right with God. All of the evidence was against you. All of the evidence was stacked up against me. It was an open and shut case. Condemnation was just deserts. And yet he comes, he redeems, and therefore he justifies. He says, nah, he is right with me. I have given him my son's righteousness. That means, as far as we're concerned, he's good. He's justified. He's innocent. He's with me. He is in Christ, and Christ is perfection. Redemption and justification, and this thing I want to come back to, this adoption that we have been transferred out of that kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the son he loves. That is, into his very household. We've been made sons and daughters. That's why Paul can say to these Christians, you remember who we worship? It's God, our Father. Now, you might have been taught from birth to say our Father in heaven, and so maybe this is kind of washing over you, but you need to come back to the the realization that that is an astonishing thing for us to be able to say. Creator and sustainer of all things, Father. He's my Father. How 
How does that happen? It comes about because of adoption. We've been adopted by God. And I just want to say, like, I know, you know, it's hard to choose favourites, but this is my favourite doctrine of Christianity, the doctrine of adoption, the idea that God has made me his son. The idea that God came to the slave market and saw me in all of my self-perpetuating filth and chose me to be his son. I think that's the greatest doctrine of Christianity. This is what J.I. Packer says in his beautiful book, Knowing God. He says, adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers. Adoption is higher than justification because of the richer relationship with God it involves. This is, not, this is what you need to know. Christianity is not just about being told, oh, you're not guilty, right? Being saved from hell. Christianity is not mainly about getting that pass and avoiding the punishment we deserve. It's so much more than that. Yes, it's receiving redemption, the forgiveness of our sins, verse 14. But it's more than that. It's being welcomed into God's household. This is how Paul says in Romans 8. I love this. He says, Romans 8, For all those led by God's Spirit are God's sons and daughters. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. The Spirit that lives in you is testifying. You need to hear it. Maybe you need to open your ears to it right now. You need to hear that spirit testifying. It's true, you know. You're more than a slave. You're a son and a daughter. We've received the spirit of adoption. And on that basis, we can cry out to God, Abba, Father, you're my daddy. You love me. You'll never reject me. You'll never kick me out of home. Or or John, in 1 John 3, he says, See what great love the Father has given us that we should be called God's children. And then he's shocked by his own words and he says, And we are! Like, it's true. We really are God's children. And he loves us. He's got no reservations whatsoever about loving us. Last night, my kids kept me up all night. All night. 
I didn't get to bed till 12.30. India was in there at 1.30. And then from then on, it was constant interruptions from both kids. They were like tag teaming just to make sure we got no sleep. And yet when I wake up in the morning, I have no reservations whatsoever about loving them. There, it never crosses my mind to say, you no longer belong to my household. I need some sleep. And I'm evil. God, this is good news. The doctrine of adoption is so beautiful. One of the reasons I think it's beautiful to me is because I've, I've experienced this not just as an adopted son of God, but my younger sister is adopted. We adopted her from South Korea, from an orphanage. She was five months old. It was 1988. And um, I remember to this day, very vividly, my parents who had gone over there to, to get her from the orphanage, they brought her back. We met them at the airport, and I was the first one to have a hold. And I just remember holding this little five-month-old, chubby little Korean girl with spiky hair and just knowing without a shadow of a doubt that she was mine. She was my sister. And, and honestly, it has never occurred to me, not once since that point, to even question whether she is or not. It, she just is. I'm not talking about legally. I know legally she's been made part of my family. I, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about something more profound than that. She's mine. She's my sister. She is. When my dad dies, my mum died months after that happened. When my dad dies, she will be privy to everything that I am privy to. Right? She will have an inheritance in my family as much as me or my two brothers because she's part of our family. She's been adopted. And so she has access to everything that we have access to. This is Paul's point when he talks about adoption. You are adopted by God, therefore you are a son of God, therefore you are a co-heir with Christ. Everything he inherits, you inherit. Now here's what would make me doubt whether she really is my sister. I would start to doubt whether she's really my sister if I was operating on the surface, right? Because she doesn't look anything like me. She's Korean, right? She looks really different to me. She looks way more like Belle's sister than my sister, right? She just does. And she grew up with me in Diamond Creek at a time where we were the whitest suburb in Australia. That's a fact. Right? She was the only Asian kid, not just in the town, but that some people had ever seen, right, that wasn't on TV. It was weird to begin with. People would ask stupid questions all the time, like, were we teaching her to speak English? <laughs> That's not how language works. <laughs> anyway, so people, if they were looking from the outside in, if we were down at the shops just doing the shopping, they would think... This is a bit weird. They would doubt whether she was my sister because we were all white guys and this was this little Asian kid with us. 
So operating on the surface, if, if, even if she was just looking at herself in the midst of us as a family, I think we've got a photo, there we go. So, um, so right, if you just look at that photo, you can see the odd one out. You can see that one of these things is not like the other, right? You can also see my double sweatbands, which I think is, um, should come back as, at some point. If you don't know who I am, just look for the gap in the teeth. All right, so, but here's the point. If you were just operating on the surface, you would start to doubt whether this was really legitimate. And this is the same thing with us and our adoption. As soon as you start operating on the surface of things, you might start to doubt whether you really have been adopted into God's family. I don't look like God's son. God's son is beautiful and radiant and perfect, and I am not any of those things. I go on holiday for a couple of weeks, and I don't want to pray anymore. But thanks be to God, we are not operating on the surface of things. This is something far more profound than that. This adoption is operating so far deeper than the surface that sometimes I think, even as Christians, we need to check ourselves and think about how do I see myself before God? Do I see myself in the substance of my actions over the last 24 hours? Or do I see myself at the much deeper, profound, and cosmic level where he declares that I am his son and his daughter? That changes everything. Guys, I, I, I just, I got other things to say, but I really want us to get this. You haven't just been saved from a punishment you deserve. You've been ushered in to a household in which you are loved deeply forever. I just really want you to know that whether you have been a Christian for a day or for 60 years, you need to know that deeply. Thank you, Lord. I've used up all my time. I've got so, uh, there's so much more in this, guys. I, I, I have a feeling this is going to repeat itself, this, this tendency to run out of time to get to, because this is deep, right? There's a few chapters to this book, but it is so deep. Let me, just, let me just work real quick through the rest, okay? So he, he goes on in the next little section. He, he wants to encourage them that, that they are producing fruit in keeping with their status as these adopted children of God, all right? So he says in, in verse 9 and following, he says, um, no, sorry, back up. Um, uh, he says in verse 3 and following, he says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, for we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints because of the hope reserved for you in heaven. 
You've already heard about this hope in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. It is bearing fruit and growing all over the world, just as it has come to you since the day you heard it and came to truly appreciate God's grace. So he says, here's here's what I know about you guys. You guys are manifesting fruit, which is evidence that what I'm saying about you is true. I'm saying you've been adopted, redeemed, transferred, forgiven, justified, saved. I'm saying all that's true, and I can see the evidence of it in your faith, love, and hope. We saw these three things in 1 Corinthians 13, remember a few weeks ago. Faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. He says, here, the same thing is true in you, that faith, love, and hope is evidence that all of this is true. And so that's obviously what we want to see in our own community, a growing in faith, love, and hope. And then he goes on, and, and we'll just keep moving quick through, through to his prayer for them. And you can just, I, I would recommend this coming week that you just dwell on and pray through this prayer that he prays for this church. Remember, he's never met these guys. He just has this kindred um, relationship with them as, as a fellow son. And so he prays this beautiful prayer for them, verse 9 to 12. And I'll just, I'll just read it. And I want to highlight four things out of it, and then we're done. Okay, so here's what he says. He says, For this reason also, since the day we heard this, we haven't stopped praying for you. And here's, here's what he's praying. We are asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding so that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience, joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has enabled you to share in the saints' inheritance in the light. That's an amazing prayer. You spend the rest of this year just praying through that prayer. If you're like me and you find it hard to sustain prayer just off the, off the, off the top of the dome, right? If, if, you just, if you find it hard just to come up with your own prayer, pray Paul's prayers. And pray them all the year through. Just Google it, Paul's prayers. Print it out and pray through them. If you would pray this prayer for our church, we would see rich blessings on us. We really would. It's a beautiful prayer. It's a powerful prayer. Four things. Four things that all start with the letter F. You get that for free. To be honest, the last one I was pushing it a bit. But anyway, the alliteration is what counts. So four things he prays. First of all, for fullness. That they would be filled with the knowledge of of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. This has its sort of corollary in Paul's other prayers for his other churches in in the sense of being filled with the Spirit. We talked a whole lot about this in the last uh, series that I did in, in, in 1 Corinthians, being filled 
with the Spirit. And, and, and part of the fruit of that is being filled with knowledge of His will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. So it's simply to be filled with the Spirit is to be walking in step with the Spirit. To be living in a Christ-like way. To be living in a way that gives evidence that we are sons and daughters of God. So fullness and then fruitfulness. So he wants them to be fruitful. And I love this. It's in good works as well as knowledge. I don't know why this happens, but churches tend to choose one or the other. Why do we do this? Some churches tend towards good works, justice, right? Care for the poor, being busy in the community. But you go on Sunday, the message goes for three minutes and it's about how to grow your hedge or something like what but then there are churches where it's all about growing in knowledge but they're not doing anything and Paul would be puzzled by that dichotomy he would call that a false dichotomy right he wants fullness of fruitfulness in good works as well as knowledge I love that I don't know it's it's great just keep praying that for us because we need help as much as anyone else does My third F, faithfulness. He's praying for the supernatural power which enables a believer to do God's will and to finish the race. So not just to trip over the line for, I just made it as a Christian. It was touch and go. But no, to walk in God's ways, to do God's will, to finish the race, to keep the faith. He knows they're prone to wander. He knows we're prone to wander. And so he prays for supernatural power. That's what you're going to need. If you want to be a Christian on the day you die, whether it's today when you walk out in the traffic at that terrible intersection or when you're 120, I don't know, neither do you. But if you want to reach that point, making all of life all about Jesus, you're going to need more than a few handy tips, a few proven principles. You're going to need supernatural power which comes as we pray and ask God for his mercy. We're going to do that tomorrow night. Come join us. Fourth F, what I really want to say is about contentment, but, but in my thesaurus it had fulfillment as a synonym for contentment, so I got gotcha. you. All right, so fulfillment. That is that they would experience contentment. This is, a, this is a Christian virtue that maybe we've forgotten about a little bit. Contentment. The whole world is designed to make you discontent. So you're going to need more spiritual power, supernatural power to overcome it. Contentment as they give thanks, as we give thanks for God's gracious gift, the inheritance we have as children of God. One of the great marks of contentment is thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. And it's awesome because it works the other way as well. If you're not feeling contented, Give thanks and you'll start to feel it. I love that. Hey guys, I'm out of time, but I just want you to know my, my heart for this series, I hope, is a little bit like Paul's heart for his letter, his heart for that church. That church, like, just like us that have been around for 10 years, the, the church just like us who are under a lot of cultural pressure to turn back from the truth, 
that like them, we would know the supremacy of the Lord Jesus over all things and we would know and experience our status as adopted children of God. Let's pray together. Father, when all's said and done this morning, I, I want us to leave this place knowing that as believers, we are your children. Dearly beloved children. If any of us doubts that now, I pray that you would overcome that doubt with such an an overwhelming outpouring of your spirit that we could never doubt it again. That we would have that experience of walking down the road with you hand in hand and then have you reach down and pick us us up and embrace us, kiss us on the cheek and remind us that we are yours and that you cherish us. May that be one of those solid foundations on which we walk. May that be our anchor that tethers us close to you. No turning back. I pray for myself. I pray for these brothers and sisters. I pray that you would richly bless us, even now, as we sing your praises. In Jesus' name, amen.